Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and moved closer toward the gospel by this week's message. One of, one of the many strange things that Christians believe, and we do believe some strange things, I think, um, one of those strange things is that people can actually be transformed. People can actually change, like really change. I mean, a lot of people believe that people can change at least a little bit. You know, take, take a class, go on a retreat, take a pill, get a life coach, go on a diet, get a gym membership, and okay, good, these things are good. Um, but today the gospel tells us that our entire lives can be genuinely transformed, utterly turned around and reshaped by an encounter with Christ, just as Andrew and, and Simon's were, as we heard read in the gospel. Well, Christianity today often features conversion stories on the back of their magazine, just, just stories of people's testimony. Here's a random sampling from a couple years ago. Jesus gave me what boozing and brawling couldn't, my journey from the criminal underworld to the foot of the cross by Alan Langham. Jesus stopped me from a shooting rampage, a would-be shooter, school shooter's road to redemption by T.J. Stevens. I marked people for death. Jesus marked me for life. How a gang leader found salvation in prison by Casey Diaz. An unpublished, at least to date, is how an angry about nothing in particular, insecure and unkind Iowan teenager became an Anglican priest by Jordan Kologi. So, so how, how are people transformed? How do we change? Pastor Thomas McKenzie, I, his sermon on this text has always kind of shaped the way I think about it. He talks about Christian transformation as a, as a black box. A black box is a system that can be viewed in terms of its inputs and its outputs without any knowledge of its internal workings. So, sorry, Kate, I didn't prepare you for the slides. They're just going to be in order. So if you could bring up the first one. This is the black box. So imagine a, a child in a doorknob. The child who tries to open a door has to manipulate the handle so as to produce the desired movement to the opening of the door, which is the output, but without being at all aware of the internal mechanism inside the doorknob. It's kind of a mystery. Or, you know, this used to be, I guess, used for photosynthesis. It isn't anymore. We understand it better. But photosynthesis, the process that powers life and growth and ultimately transformation in plants, requires what for inputs, scientists? Water, carbon dioxide, and sunlight. Those are the inputs. And the output, of course, is growth, life, transformation. But, but at least to me, what happens in between is a black box. It's a mystery. I don't understand it at all. I know that fusion reaction on the sun, the particles travel 93 million miles to hit the surface of the plant, and something insane happens. So the inputs. Let's look at the inputs of Christian transformation. What are they? We're going to say a few things about the inputs. The output is transformation, and then I'm going to try to say a few things about the black box as well. Well, the first input is simple. Someone points to Jesus. Someone points to Jesus. And Kate, you can go to the next slide. There's an invitation to consider Jesus. So in the text this morning, John the Baptist says to Andrew and another disciple, who's probably John, he never names himself um, in the gospel, says, look, there's the Lamb of God. And later, Andrew does the same thing for his brother Simon. Look, come, come see Jesus. Transfer, that's how transformation begins. Very ordinary. Someone points to Jesus. That's what we call evangelism, to use a slightly dirty word. Um, it, it doesn't have to be incredibly awkward, though. It doesn't have to be complicated. It shouldn't be super weird and, and, and negative. Hey, if you died tonight, you'd know where you'd go. No, it's like, have you considered Jesus? 
let me, let me tell you about my encounter with Jesus. Come, come and see him. You know, for me, this was my parents. This was um, my youth pastors, Drew Schmidt and Sarah Walston. Uh, my pastor, Kevin Corver. I'm sure you can name, many of you can name people in your own life who said, hey, look at Jesus. And their own lives kind of evidenced him. Who was that for you? That's the first step. The next input is that Andrew and the other disciples start kind of awkwardly trailing Jesus from a distance. Um, this is the second input. Something has to change. Some, you have to actually move a little bit. Um, seemingly, the disciples do this with an open mind and an open heart. They obviously wanted something from Jesus. What did they want? Um, I think they wanted something very genuine, very pure, and we'll see in a minute why I think that. But why do you want Jesus? Why do people want Jesus? If you look historically at why people consider Jesus, at least, and even in the New Testament we see this, there's a lot of good reasons and some not so good reasons. Often people seem to be interested in the crowds. Some people just want the spectacle. Uh, they drink up the social energy of, of, the, of the scene, of the Christian scene. Other people want to hang around Jesus kind of like a genie in the bottle. If you, if you kind of rub the bottle the right way with the right prayer, he will grant you the desired wish. Some people hang around him because they like the sense of moral superiority, perhaps. The way that being a Christian and being a, a kind of an upstanding person sort of helps them to look down on others who are not. These are bad reasons, obviously. Other people are maybe just after a clean conscience. They think of Jesus as a therapist whose primary job is to tell them that they didn't do anything wrong and, and to bolster their sense of self. And perhaps this is why the Gospels throughout, Jesus is always a little bit reticent to let people start following him. Very often, he's, people are saying, hey, I'm going to follow you, and he's telling them things like, following me means being homeless. I have nowhere to sleep. Or sell everything you have and then follow me. Because Jesus is not interested in just a fan club. He isn't interested in people who are just wanting to be near him for the crowds or the miracles or whatever it is. He is interested in followers, disciples. And so I think we can suspect Andrew's motives. I think we can suspect they're rather pure by his question in verse 38. Rabbi, where are you staying? This was a polite way of asking for just more time with Jesus. There was no crowd yet. There was no religious status to be gained yet. He didn't ask for a miracle. He asked for him, for his presence. He wanted to be close to Jesus. He wanted to know where Jesus was staying because he assumed Jesus is on his way there and he wanted to go with him. He wanted to be with him. If God is going to transform us, if he's going to transform you, it's going to require some level of movement on your part. If you think about where you are now and where Jesus is, and you think, I want to be over there, you cannot be completely passive. Now, God does the work in the end, but you, you can't be passive. Nothing's going to change if you're completely passive. You must get up and begin moving towards Jesus, whatever that means. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's beginning to come to church. Maybe it's a, a, a friendship that you begin to explore the things of Jesus with. Um, maybe it's, I, I don't know, ask the Lord what he has for you. But there's some movement on your part. And then the third input is this. We see Jesus finally turn and look at Andrew and the other disciple who are walking at a polite distance. And he says, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? They're following from a distance until Jesus finally calls them close in the form of this question. What do you want? Transformation begins in earnest when you get in touch with what you really desire. This, I think, is the heart of transformation. What do you want? What do you really want? I'm so humbled by this question because if, if I follow Jesus, uh, if I get close to him and allow myself 
to ask this question and, and be honest with my answer, I so often realize that my desires have been running off after everything but him. Comfort, often, entertainment, stuff. These things so easily pull me into their orbit, and I realize that's what I'm actually desiring, if I'm honest. And so if I am courageous enough and still enough to get in touch with my disordered desires, often then I'll hear Jesus' gracious words to me, Jordan, come and see me again. Come and see me. So if or when you realize that your heart is going after these different things, these disordered attachments, comfort or entertainment or stuff or, or work or sex or money or power, one of these things has become like a planet that you are beginning to orbit that's, that's pulled you in, what do you do? Come and see Jesus again. Because it's not that these good things are bad. Many of them are, are very good. It's that they're not ultimate and they're impoverished compared to Christ. And so escaping the gravity of these lesser desires actually requires a greater gravity. It requires you to be pulled out of orbit by something heavier and weightier and more glorious. You can't generate this desire. It's a gift you must ask for. So ask him, where are you staying? And hear his call, come and see so don't rush to remove things from your life. Instead, rush to God, asking God to increase your desire for him. Struggle with God as Jesus did in the garden, wrestling with his will, and finally getting to this place where he gives you the grace of his assurance that, that his way is, is best, and you follow him, and you, you, you're drawn into his orbit. You know, if we think of athletes, like world-class athletes, they hear a call, don't they? They hear a call to greatness, to be the best in the world at their sport. And what do they do? Their whole life becomes an orbit around this one call, this, this desire. They sacrifice everything. And they won't stop. They're utterly transformed by this call. So friends, to be really transformed by Jesus, something has to happen in our heart where we hear a call. We hear him say, come and see me, and we see him. So I wonder, have you, have you heard that call? And if not, ask him. Ask him for it. Open your heart to it. Pray for it. Might be a good question to journal about. You know, take stock of where are you in your relationships? Where are you in your habits, your situation? And where is Jesus? And do you want to begin following him? Do you want him to pull you out of that orbit and into his or not? Get serious about your desire. So those are the inputs. The invitation to consider him, the movement towards him, and, and then hearing the call to follow him. The output we've said is transformation. But now what about the black box? The black box. What, if anything, do we, do we, can, we, can we know about what's going on in there? At the end of the day, I don't really get it. Why, why is one person changed and another person not? Why do some people seem to be following Jesus, but then their decisions and their relationships are, are so broken? Why are so many professional Christians wearing things like this, falling into narcissism and, and moral failure? Transformation is kind of a mystery. I don't, I don't really know. And when I find myself kind of drowning in questions about something that's really complicated, what I usually do is I come back to what I do know. Like, where is solid ground here? This text gives us a few places of solid ground. Ultimately, we don't know what Andrew and the other disciple experienced that night around Jesus' table. We do know that it was late in the afternoon, probably four o'clock, and so they went to be with him. We don't know what words Jesus spoke or, or what, what happened there that changed the trajectory of these men's entire lives. But here's what we know. They experienced at least two things, the hospitality of Jesus and, and community around Jesus. Perhaps the Gospel of John here is teaching by way of omission. 
because we don't, we don't get to know what happens there. Perhaps the fine contours of that conversation were less important to their transformation than the simple fact of Jesus' hospitality and presence. You hear what I'm saying? You know, he says to these two weirdos following him, hey guys, come, come and see where I live. And no doubt they come and, and he serves them dinner and he welcomes them into his presence with, with hospitality. I don't know how people change, but I know that it doesn't happen without the hospitality of Jesus. How is he present to us now? How is he hospitable to us now? Well, he's the one who baptizes by the Spirit, remember? I've seen this in my own life, how he's been present to me by his Spirit in ways big and in ways small. You know, I've told the story several times of seventh grade. I had this two-minute encounter with, with the one who baptizes with the Spirit, and I felt my body, you know, like the Spirit of God was filling me up like a, like a glass of wine that began overflowing. And the when I try to talk about that experience, the primary thing I can say about it is it felt like I was being welcomed home by, by a very gracious host, like, like I was being served a feast, you know, in my soul, and I felt at peace. And since that moment, I have had seasons defined by joy and peace and purpose, and I have had seasons defined by loneliness and anxiety and addiction. But... Never once since that moment have I felt like I've been totally absent of God's love, of his patient forgiveness, of his hope. Sometimes those things have been more real to me, sometimes a little bit less, but they've been there. Now, a smaller example, some of you can maybe relate to that, some of you can't, and that's fine. A smaller example, two years ago, I've told this story too. Two years ago, I was right here confessing my sins here in church, and it was in the wake of a traumatic event that I was sort of dealing with the fallout from. I suddenly became aware of God's loving presence, just slightly more pronounced. You know, it wasn't overwhelming, just slightly more pronounced, his gentle, loving presence. In this quiet moment, I felt wounds of my heart being, being, being tenderly repaired. Not all of them, not entirely, but there was a profound before and after that moment in a way that nothing else could have done that. It was the Spirit, it was the presence of God that, that transformed me. And so if you want to be transformed, you have to start by going where God is. Okay, yes, he's everywhere, always. Okay, you know what I mean? Seek his presence. Go weekly to a church that faithfully preaches his words and offers his sacraments. The sacraments, sure, in certain means of his presence and grace. Go to the poor in whom he delights. Be with and serve children. Get on your knees in the quiet of your closet. Soak, soak in beautiful music or, or delight in his creation. The technique is less important. That's the point. The technique is less important than the longing. Long, long for him. Get in touch with your desire for him. Not the crowds, not a miracle, not his benefits, but, but him. Now we also see in the story how the hospitality of Jesus is meant to extend to others, don't we? It's interesting that the first thing that happens after these men encounter Jesus is they go and get their family, and, and, a, and a community starts forming around Jesus. When Andrew goes to get his brother Simon in verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. And not, not long after that, Jesus is bringing his disciples to a wedding where they've run out of wine, and Jesus plays host, again, showing hospitality by producing the greatest wine they've ever had, blowing their minds. So transformation might begin in isolation, but it always deepens through community, always. It always deepens through a community of people gathered around Christ. 
Now, this is one way I think our community is both very strong and always, we can always be in need of strengthening, can't we? So I don't want you to take what I'm going to say in the wrong way. I believe you are a wonderfully hospitable bunch. You're a very kind people. You're very warm people. You're very generous people. You are also a very introverted and busy people, right? Uh, I can relate. Um, the, the come and see of Jesus is an invitation to be the kind of people who, like Jesus, are willing to be interrupted. You know, to be walking along, going your way, seeing some people nearby and saying, hey, come and see. I want to host you tonight. Come around my table. And to show the hospitality of Jesus to others. You know, I long for myself and for us as a church to be a, more and more a place where, where visitors get like an immediate invitation to, to, to lunch. Like, if you're going to err on the side of underbearing or overbearing, just be that slightly bit overbearing, you know? Not too much. You don't want to weird them out. But, but just, you know, I, want us, I don't want anyone to come here and feel like I wasn't seen. No one said, hey. No one, no one extended an invitation. I want to be the kind of church and the, fam- the kind of family where we're single folks who, who without family in town have, never have Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner alone. They always have a table. You know, perhaps this is one way you can be further transformed uh, this new year, to practice the warm hospitality of Christ. You know, to be the kind of person who says to those around you, come and see Jesus through me. I, I have time for you. I have a table for you. I want to be with you. Two of my heroes in this are from my old church, Patrick and Lori Nielsen. They would always, um, their habit was to prepare a casserole, this is the South, to prepare a casserole on Saturday, put it in the refrigerator, and then on Sunday morning, they'd wake up, put it in the oven, go to church, and their goal every Sunday was to, was to have someone come home with them to enjoy that casserole. And they pre-made it so they could be fully present with their guests. So Jenny and I received that a few weeks after coming. I saw them do that week after week after week, and wow, a community formed around their home and around their table. So beautiful. So hospitality can just be simple, and it forms community. It's, and, and community is a necessary ingredient in transformation. It does seem to me that lately Christian community it seems to be harder and harder to maintain for many reasons. Let's look at this just for a moment. My, my friend Matthew Brown, one of, he's an Anglican priest, friend of mine from seminary, he, he offers a really helpful rubric. He calls it the five stages of community. The first stage is the honeymoon. It's exciting. You're new to the community. Everything is great. Oh, we found our home. It's wonderful. But it doesn't set you up for reality very well. But that's okay. Maybe you need this to kind of get in the door. The second stage is apathy. You suddenly realize it's kind of boring. It's kind of tedious. You go from like, sweet life group tonight to, oh, oh, life group tonight. Do we have to go? These people are boring. These sermons are long. This music is kind of, it's getting stale, you know, whatever. Stage three, then, is the rough patch. Your apathy, you know, goes into just this rough patch. When the real you starts coming out, Old wounds surface and start to inform the way you, re, you, know, you interact. Old wounds come. Unaddressed resentment begins to surface. This is when the, the rich tax collector and the violent political zealot and the poor fisherman realize just how different they are. And it's uncomfortable. And there are unmet expectations. And, and there's disappointment. The, the community is disappointing. And this gets really hard. And we start to think, I don't know if it's worth it. Maybe the grass is greener. Probably is somewhere, to be honest. We'll get to that. But if we persevere, we go into acceptance. We begin to realize that for better or for worse, these are the people God has put in my life. And he has something for me here. And he has something for them through me here. 
These people are image bearers. Everyone has a unique expression I can learn from and grow from. Yeah, and maybe this person is annoying when they chew with their mouth open or, or whatever it is, but there are things the Lord has for me here through them, and vice versa. Now, I know this isn't a popular thought. Matthew talks about this. He says, you know, no one wants to get to the end of the rom-com and say, and, and, and then the big punchline of the rom-com is like, and they accepted the mediocrity of their relationship, you know? <laughs> but, it, but it is actually necessary because it's life. Because after this stage comes re-engagement. We, we press back into vulnerability and back into accountability, this time without the idealism. And this is finally when community truly forms us and it forms those around us. Those of you who have been in like business settings, you may have heard the, like, the team dynamic of forming, storming, norming, performing. Like there's a, there's, a, there's a movement there. Now, of course, there are reasons to leave a community. I'm not saying you should never move, you should never leave a toxic community. There are, of course, there are good reasons. That's not the point of the sermon, though. The principle is true. Real community takes time, investment, and endurance. And, and real community and transformation go hand in hand. The community that gathered around Jesus spent three years basically living together. You know, of course, they knew each other's sharp edges. They heard each other speak unkind words. They, they could probably discern Matthew's snore from Peter's snore, you know, in the dead of night. Transformation requires intimate, vulnerable, long-suffering community. Now, just in closing, as we land the plane, I want to name two barriers. The first barrier is idealism. The grass might be greener somewhere. It probably is. I mean, you have thousands of choices of communities, literally, and that makes it hard to settle. I, I settle because I work here. I, I'm sympathetic to you all, you know? The, the grass is greener somewhere, and that's why people always, you know, there's a temptation to just keep moving around. But uh, when we experience a disappointment with the community, we start to do what Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Life Together calls, we start, to, we start to wish dream. I find this thought extremely challenging and extremely true. He says, every human wish dream that is injected into the community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. Because he who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of community. Even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial, these are good-hearted people, right? But the man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, by himself, and he enters into that community with his demands, and he sets up his own law, and he judges everyone else accordingly. In other words, this community better perform to my standards, or I'm out. That does not set you up well for community. The second barrier is what we, you know, we're all wired for instant gratification. Take the pill. You know, order it on Prime, it's there the next day, grab it through the drive-thru. So many people abandon community in stage three, the rough patch, because it's just not gratifying. Let's try something more gratifying. No, it's hard, but it's often beyond stage three where God really begins to work in deep relational ways, where you know one another, including your faults, and you experience the love of God through them nevertheless. Again, my friend Matthew's reflections are so helpful. He points out that this is actually how Christian life feels generally. You know, if every time in my own devotional life, if I open my Bible and I pray, I expect that God brings me to my knees in tears, I'm setting myself up for failure. My devotional life very often feels very mediocre, and that's okay. Sometimes it's just a quiet awareness of God's love and presence, a gentle sense of encouragement. Great, 
Other times, it's no feeling at all. It's feelings of frustration and disappointment and like, what am I even doing? This is just boring and I'm talking to myself. But you know what? He's not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. I'm actually still in the relationship precisely because I don't expect the entire thing to be a honeymoon. It requires some endurance. And so if we push through our wish dreams, through our need for instant gratification, then community can be transformative. So we look at Peter's trajectory as an example. He's invited into community by community. He experiences the hospitality of Jesus, and then Peter trans- he's transformed. He's named the rock. Now, wasn't it some years before that name meant anything to him? before he found himself as the foundation of the Christian community in Rome. But it was through community, you know, Peter got this new role, this new identity, this new name. So community needs you and you need it. And through it, God wants to work. Let me just end with one practical invitation. We're going to hear in announcements um, that there are life groups available for you to join. Life groups are kind of our first step beyond Sunday morning, into deeper community. It's a a more intimate, more accountable, more enduring place of relationships that deepen. If you're not already in one, would you consider jumping in one? Um, That said, one of our values at Advent is we are always invitational and not, you know, we like to invite, not obligate. So you, you are not obligated to join a life group. You do not need to be ashamed if you're not in a life group. But just prayerfully consider, if your schedule, you know, allows it, if, if you don't have deep community elsewhere, a life group could be a really good thing for you. Consider it. It's not going to fix everything. It's not a magic bullet, you know? Don't go in with this big wish dream to, ha- to have it fulfill everything. But, but if you go in and you enter into a community, then maybe two years from now, that life group will have transformed you a little bit. As we move towards the table today, I just want to invite you to en- enjoy this mystery, this black box. Here, Christ is present. Here, Christ is present. You know, he's, he's present with, with us as we're present with one another. So be in his presence. Be with one another. And, and Lord, as, as, as we are with you and as we're with one another, would you grow us? Would you change us? Would you transform us into disciples? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.